Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. What a week, my friends. What a week it has been. What a day it's been. I woke up this morning. I was like, maybe it'll be a, a little more chilled out in the news cycle than, it, uh, than it's been in a few days. But nope. Uh, nope. That is not that is not how things went today. Uh, in fact, I feel like no one's even going to take much of a break over the course of the of the weekend. Um, I think you're going to see a fair amount of this fight spill over into everything else that's going on. So as as you have no doubt heard, President Trump fired the FBI director, James Comey, and media has gone crazy as a result of this they are they uh, this is it's watergate it's worse than watergate it's a constitutional crisis the country's in collapse what are we gonna do they need to impeach him treason i mean they have taken the dial way past 10 it is now on 11 Uh, they've taken the dial all the way up to 11 um they, by the way, we also will be talking today about this massive cyber hack uh, reported in a number of countries, including the UK, where it has uh, brought hospitals to a standstill. I'll give you details on that. We'll have an expert joining later on. Um, we'll also be talking about uh, Hillary Clinton. It's Friday. Yay. Hillary time. We'll have Hillary Clinton joining. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> we will not have Hillary Clinton joining. We will be talking about Hillary Clinton and a fake version of Hillary Clinton uh, will maybe appear on, on the airwaves, but not actually. Mrs. Clinton has yet. Maybe we should put out some requests to see if she'd come on the show, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. It's doubtful, guys. It's doubtful we could get the actual uh, Hillary Clinton on the air with us, but I'll try. I'm very polite, you know. I, I'm very friendly to people when they're willing to come on the show, even if I think uh, they're pretty terrible as politicians or whatever. So uh, here, here's what happened this morning that got everybody. Let, let's just get into it. Here's what happened this morning that got everybody all fired up. They're not not going to take this one uh, without making a lot of noise. President Trump uh, tweeted out about uh, what was this about ten hours ago? A series. It was a tweet storm, a Trump tweet storm. And I know a lot of you aren't on Twitter, but it is it is a, a preferred communication method for the president of the United States. The, the the president tweets, and the whole country reads and watches what the president tweets. So uh, it, it allows him to have a a direct outlet, a voice that goes. To anyone and everyone, here's what he tweeted out 10 hours ago. And this ties into Russia, Comey, all all that stuff that we've been talking about this week. And I promise I will mix it up today on the show. We'll get into a bunch of different things, talk to you about uh, 
automation and jobs and the history of the Luddites, and I've got all kinds of stuff planned. That's not that's not just sitting here like, there's no evidence of collusion. He undermined the investigation. But there's no evidence that Russia and Trump work together. This is a constitutional crisis. You know, just this, this shouting match that's going on in the media and across the country right now is very, uh, very frustrating. But here we are. Uh, here's what the president did. He tweeted out, uh, the fake media is working overtime today. As a very active president with lots of things happening, it is not possible for my surrogates to stand at podium with perfect accuracy. Then he wrote, maybe the best thing to do would be to cancel all future future press briefings and hand out written responses for the sake of accuracy. And he wrote, James Comey better hope that there are no tapes of our conversation before he starts leaking to the press. Um, let's stop there for a second. There, there's more, but let's no. Well, that, that was the, the first tweet storm. So two things here from the president of the United States. One of them is that he is implying that he would at least consider that Donald Trump would consider canceling press briefings, which he puts in quotes. He does the put, he puts things in quotes sometimes and I'm like, why is that in quotes? But that's okay. You know, he's got his, own, he's definitely got his own style. Um, press briefings and quotes. So that's going to get the media very agitated. And I, I think he's doing that intentionally. I think that's he's kidding there. OK, he's not going to cancel all press briefings. But just bringing it up, of course, is throwing a is throwing a stake into the into the hyena, uh, the hyena pit. I mean, it, it is just going to drive the media completely and utterly insane, uh, which is what's happening today. I mean, they are in all out. Um, they are in all out. Trump is destroying the country mode, which I guess they're in that every day. But today it seems particularly bad. But then this thing, James Comey, FBI director, James. Comey, this is what he's saying about him. He better hope that there are no tapes of our conversations before he starts leaking to the press. Now, I know that this is a preemptive strike from the Trump administration, right? There's been no major leaks yet that I know of from Comey or any of his top people. Um, so that's not something that's happened yet. And I'm, by the way, I am sitting here, and I'm just going to be totally honest with you, I am struggling so badly with the possibility of a sneeze, and it's a live radio show, so what can you do? But I'm at any moment now, if, if it happens, if you hear like a thud, it means I've sneezed so hard I've smacked my head on the on the microphone and I've passed out. But I'm trying not to sneeze. All right, uh, James. Cla- I'm sorry, James Comey. Uh, better be no tapes of our conversations. He's implying here that there's the possibility of recordings on which Comey may have said certain things to Trump. Now this comes after a New York Times piece that broke that suggests that uh, there was a dinner between Trump and Comey. And at that dinner, um, Trump asked if there was, uh, if he could count on loyalty. Um, And here's what the president had to say about this. Apparently, the New York Times is selling that you asked Comey whether or not you had his loyalty was possibly inappropriate. Could you see no, how they think, think I read, that? I read that article. I don't think it's inappropate. Did you ask isn't. that question? No, no, I didn't. But I don't think it would be a bad question to ask. I think loyalty to the country, loyalty to the United States is important. You know, I mean, it depends on how you define loyalty. 
number one. Number two, I don't know how that got there because I didn't ask that question. Can we be adult about this for a second, everybody? I mean, we're always adult on the show, but you know what I mean. Does anybody for a second think that Loretta Lynch and before her, Eric Holder, would be described as anything other than Obama loyalists if asked about this loyalty issue? Does anyone think for a second that Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder were, were not very tied personally and professionally to not just the Obama administration, but to President Obama himself, and that they were loyal to him in the role of attorney general? I, I just, you know, we, we think about this for a moment and well, you say, well, Buck, but this is the FBI director. This is different. No. I, I, I'm not the FBI director is under the deputy attorney general and answers to the deputy attorney general and the attorney general. The FBI director is an employee of the Department of Justice. The head of the Department of Justice, the previous two heads of the Department of Justice, were hardcore straight down the line on every issue Obama loyalists. So. Are we supposed to pretend that quite, uh, asking about loyalty is so beyond the pale? At least Trump is up front about it. If he, he says he didn't ask, but he's saying, well, I would ask. OK. But then you get to the so whether that's a big issue or not, I, I I'm not as sold on a lot of other people that that's something to be so concerned about. But then you get to this point about the possibility of recordings, tapes that may uh, be out there. And this is also from the uh, Judge Janine interview on Fox, where, well, the president addressed it. You said that there might be tape recordings. Well, that I can't talk about. I won't talk about that. All I want is for Comey to be honest, and I hope he will be, and I'm sure he will be, I hope. Um, I don't know why he can't talk about that. He wrote about it in a tweet. Look, Trump has his style. And it has made him president of the United States, and it has allowed him to be more effective as a club with which to strike at the left, at the progressives and at their whole agenda, or at a minimum at least, not Hillary and not the Democrats in charge is a powerful rationale and a, and a, a very understandable uh, justification for uh, voting for Trump and also a reason to quite honestly celebrate his presidency up to this point. Um, but he's on perpetual offense against the media, or at least trying to be. And he's even trying to take a, a position of offense against the media when it comes to this Comey firing and saying that if Comey leaks, there will be consequences for it is an effort, I think, to get ahead of all of the stories that we can expect to come out from officials, present and past government officials, that will claim to have some knowledge of Comey or his dealings and will try to undermine the administration. There are, without question, elements within the government still who are very opposed to this administration and would very much like to bring Trump down personally and to bring down the entire uh, White House apparatus that he's got with him, if they could. Now, I do think that the the amount of anonymous sourcing that we see in a lot of these news reports that are damaging to Trump, we should not just be skeptical of now. We should start to discount some of this or at least say that it's pending further evidence. 
Uh, how many news reports were wrong earlier this week about Trump that were damaging? Many of them uh, after the Comey firing, as we know. So uh, I, I don't understand really what the um, the end game is here is uh, the end game here is for Trump and his stating that he may have tapes of a discussion with Comey. Uh, that's like I understand he wants to that Trump wants to be on offense, doesn't want to be constantly on defense. I don't really get the play here. Just be honest with you. I, I I know that it's yeah, it's a preemptive strike against leaks, but it certainly opens up the president now to a lot of uh, head scratching. Um, it's not a huge deal, and it doesn't really matter from the perspective of whether he's going to achieve uh, greatness during his presidency and whether he will follow through on all, on all of his promises. But uh, maybe part of this is just to take a, a saturation approach to the media to make them so angry uh, and so consistently that that just becomes their natural state with it, with regard to this administration. And they we can't tell the difference between when they're really outraged and when they're not. It's just it's just Tuesday for them. You know, any day where the media is talking about how Trump is a traitor and this is treason and the administration and impeachment. You know, and, and this stuff is not it's not even the first time they've they've pulled this kind of line. They were saying that Bush stole the election from Gore and he was illegitimate. Let's not forget that. Um, anyway, uh, it is Friday, which means it's action movie quote Friday in effect. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote Friday. Special points if you can come up with an action movie, an action movie quote that is from a movie that has some political tie-in, you know, or that I don't mean that to, to today, but it has politics in it, you know, like Harrison Ford in Clear and Present Danger. Sorry, Mr. President, I don't dance. And that guy who's like the old Potomac two-step, Jack. Uh, something like that, if you want to throw that my way. Or we can just, you know, whatever you got for me in the action movie quotes. We could hit those too. We'll talk a little bit more about this. I'm not going to spend the whole day talking about Comey and the media and everything because we've done a lot of that this week. But that's clearly the, that tweet storm this morning was, um, wow. A lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the media pretty upset. We will talk about the massive hacking operation. We've also uh, got a, a Hillary story later and a lot of show, not that much time. We'll be right back. Stay with me. Oh, gosh. Mika on Morning Joe just she doesn't like Kellyanne Conway. Ooh, it's so, it's just, she called it politics porn. 102, play it. Also, note to CNN, sorry, I love CNN, but you got to stop pu- putting Kellyanne on the air. It's politics porn. You're just getting your little ratings crack, okay? But it's disgusting. There's nothing that she brings to the table that's honest. Your hosts know it. Your hosts look pained when they interview her because they know they're just doing politics porn. What does that even mean? And does she does she watch much of what's on CNN? Does she see some of the panels that they have and the people that they elevate into positions of prominence as commentators? Um, You're you're going to what you're going to ban you're going to ban a senior advisor to the president uh, from being on air because you don't like what she says. And then you wonder why people don't trust you and don't want to listen to what you have to say when it comes to politics. I mean, what what is this? Uh, you know, but she's very, 
She is very, you know, ooh, she doesn't want to hear any of this nonsense. Mika doesn't want to hear it. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering how. I think also Morning Joe is one of these shows that for a while was very friendly with with Trump himself, and now they're on the outs with him or something. So it, it's just uh, it's just nonsense. Um, you know, everyone's being told that this is such a uh, such a big deal. That look what's happened with Comey. And then they turn around, they're like, why don't people believe us? Well, they're crying wolf, for one, that we've heard so much of this. And there's only so many times I can be told that Trump is destroying the, Trump has destroyed the country and it's all over before I'm like, you know, that's not what's going on here. And not me. I mean, I never think it's what's going on. But I'm saying the just normal person listening at home, I think, reaches a point where they have had enough. Um, so... You know, I'm I'm looking at this now and I'm thinking to myself, uh, this might be a good thing for it to be finally the case that the administration, uh, it is known that there are just hostile outlets, <laughs> that that they are part of the resistance. We'll talk about, we got Keith Olbermann not joining. I, I, that would be fun. Um, we've got Keith Olbermann clip later on in the show where he calls, he actually says that he's part of the resistance. Um but uh, it's it's going to be very interesting, my friends, because this is now there's no there's no turning back from what's happened here. There's and with the Internet, all this stuff lives forever that these people are saying on TV. Uh, but I didn't even heard that term before politics porn. Um, hmm. Anyway, John in Mississippi on WBUV. What have you got for me, sir? I've got a movie quote and I know you will not be able to answer it. And I'd like to uh, say a comment uh, in defense of uh James Comey, who I, I presume to be innocent of grandstanding or, or whatever people are mad at him about, I don't believe he was trying to call attention to himself. What do you think that whole announcement, instead of letting the attorney general announce it, why she didn't recuse herself? It's her job to announce yeah. whether there'll be charges yeah. against Hillary. That's that's. Well, I think that is grandstanding, John, I'll be honest with you. Well, um, I don't believe it is a policy. I believe. I mean, I believe it is a policy. It's not a rule. And under uh, certain circumstances, it would be necessary to um, change from that, that policy. He had a good reason, and I'll tell you the reason, that 11 days before the election, he announced that uh, Anthony Weiner's computer, which was under investigation for uh, exchanging sexually explicit photos with an underage girl, his, his computer was discovered to have uh, Hillary's emails on it. James Comey had just said under oath to Congress that he was not going to reopen the investigation. But at, at, at 11 days before the election is when Anthony Weiner's computer came to light. He felt obligated to correct what he had just said a few days before. Or I know, or, John, you're not, John, you understand you're not telling me anything I don't know, right? So what, what, are, what, are, we, what are we getting at here? Yeah, well, it shows that he had a good reason, a legitimate reason, for announcing that he no, was the, the FBI doesn't necessarily the FBI. It's unusual for the FBI to publicly declare what is under investigation and what is not. That That's actually not standard practice. It's not standard practice, but this is not a standard situation. OK, well, it's not. And, and you know, when, when you're the FBI director and you go for you step away from protocol and you make decisions like this that look very political, whether you're doing it to both sides or oh. not, it still looks like you're not a, not a part, an impartial uh, actor in all this. Uh, but, John, we don't have time for the movie quote, my oh. friend, because we're going into a break now. But I do appreciate you calling in. Team, we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. A massive hack hitting dozens of countries, according to the New York Times here. Hackers exploiting data stolen from the United States government conducted extensive cyber attacks on Friday that hit dozens of countries, severely disrupting Britain's public health system and wreaking havoc on tens of thousands of computers elsewhere, including Russia's Ministry for Internal Security. Hospitals in Britain appeared to be the most severely affected by the attacks, which aimed to blackmail computer users by seizing their data. The attacks blocked doctors' access to patient files and forced emergency rooms to divert people seeking urgent care. Uh, It was not immediately clear who was behind the attacks, but the acts deeply alarmed cybersecurity experts. Uh, When people ask what keeps you up at night, said Chris Camacho, the chief strategy officer at Flashpoint, it's this. This is what keeps you up at night if you're a cybersecurity expert. Well, we've got a cybersecurity expert now on the line to talk to us about exactly what is going on here. We've got David Kennedy joining us. He's a hacking expert and founder and CEO of Trusted Sec, an information security consulting firm. Uh, he worked for the United States Marine Corps, deployed to Iraq twice, and is famous for cracking healthcare.gov in four minutes. David, thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Definitely, uh, definitely be a busy day for us in the uh, security industry. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, I guess it's a you know, hacking is not going away. You guys have job security for the foreseeable, but this thing today <laughs> is is really scary. Tell us what's going on. Well, so this this attack that they're using is from a, a ransomware called WannaCry, um, and it's it's been a well known um, what we call ransomware variant, which um, has been in the public for a while. But the reason why this is so devastating, uh, as you reported, you know, it's at 74 countries. Um, the estimates go up every pretty much 10 minutes or so. Uh, I think we're at about 120,000 computers now at this point um, that are being impacted specifically by this um, uh, specific variant. But why why it's so alarming is 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 the way that the attackers are using this uh, method to spread. Um, it's actually from the leaked um, NSA equation group uh, dump that Russia did recently um, with, that basically released a lot of the NSA tools to the public. Um, and as part of that, um, there was an exploit out there um, called Eternal Blue um, that was used by the NSA to conduct operations um, that is actively out there being used and incorporated into this, uh, which a lot of companies haven't patched yet. Microsoft has released the patch, um, but they haven't been able to patch, you know, medical facilities, um, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, loss of life and things like that are usually slower to patch your systems. Um, this hit very quickly, and a lot of computer systems haven't been updated yet to the latest Microsoft patch. Um, so they're able to, to essentially wreak havoc um, across the world right now because people haven't patched yet. How sophisticated does a cyber adversary have to be to pull something like this off? I mean, couldn't this could this be a guy in a basement somewhere, or is this, if not nation-state sponsored, at least more of a hacking collective kind of situation? Well, what do you think about the likely uh, likely perpetrator here? Well, these, these ransomware, um, you know, campaigns are usually, um, you know, organized crime, uh, very much sent on monetary gain. Uh, you know, what, what happens is, is that they encrypt your file systems and they spread across your network, um, you know, like, like, like a fire, you know, like a forest fire across your network. And it encrypts, you know, entire companies, hospitals, et cetera, uh, to where you can't have access to your files. It'll actually shut computer systems down um, until you pay, you know, usually it's in Bitcoin, uh, an online currency, uh, to go and pay the ransom on or do it. And based on the volume of, co- of compromised machines that they were able to encrypt, the, the, the number goes up. So, you know, the more documents, the more files are actually able to encrypt, you know, it could reach, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that you have to pay back to these. 
Um, so usually it's done by by organized crime. It could could have absolutely been done from someone in their basement. Uh, it didn't need to be a highly sophisticated adversary. Um, that's why this this is such a damaging one is because when the shadow brokers um, released all the information from the NSA hacks, they released all the code and the techniques that were used um, by the NSA back in 2013. And Microsoft had just freshly patched it almost about a month and a half ago, um, you know, silently. Um, but a lot of people, again, haven't updated their systems. Um, so the reason why this is bad is because literally anybody can do it. You don't have to be a huge, you know, sophisticated hacker um, to really build this type of tool to be able to mass deploy it like we've seen here. And we're speaking to David Kennedy. He's a hacking expert and founder and CEO of Trusted Sec. Uh, I see this report from The Hollywood Reporter. The FBI gives Hollywood advice, uh, a Hollywood, sorry, Hollywood hacking victims surprising advice, pay the ransom. That's usually what, you, you know, you usually don't hear that, right? But now we're being told, no, the FBI is like, look, you've got to evaluate the damage to your files versus how much you got to pay. What do you make of that? That's that's the world that we live in today, unfortunately. Um, you know, if you don't have solid backups of your information and the only way that you can recover your business um, or your organization is paying the ransom, that's the advisement. Now, you know, as a security professional, you know, it alarms me because, you know, obviously we don't want to be giving these folks money because they're going to continue to develop or can continue to expand their capabilities and make these, you know, um, you know, ransomware pieces a much larger problem. If no one paid the ransom, period, there wouldn't be a ransomware market uh, or wouldn't be as large as it is today. Uh, but unfortunately, in order for businesses to operate, um, they they are suggesting to pay it um, in order to to get your files back and, and to get your business up and running. And, you know, most of the time, you know, they, these are full-fledged businesses. I mean, a lot of times they have help desks that you can actually communicate with people to that help you pay with the Bitcoin. I mean, these are full-fledged businesses that are obviously doing things illegally. Um, but, you know, they, they, they will usually give you your files back. Um, so it's a, it's a business to them. They're making a, a substantial amount of money. We're talking billions of dollars of money. Um, that is passing through these ransomware schemes. Um, it's it's one of the largest uh, problems that we face today, uh, right now, and through co- corporations, is the ability to protect against it. And by the way, B- Bitcoin. Uh, just to people that are listening, tell I know that it's it's digital currency. We've talked about it here a little bit on the show before. Uh, but how would somebody pay a ransom in Bitcoin? And also, does that make it virtually untraceable for the you know so the bad guys can stockpile this stuff? And it's a lot harder to know. And they're clearly not just opening up a a, a bank account somewhere and saying send it here, right? So how does that work? Yep. Well, that's that's actually why we've seen such a large increase in ransomware. Um, it is really due to um, you know the online currency that we see with Bitcoin today because. Um, you know, what the FBI used to be able to do very easily um, is do money laundering uh, tracking, you know, track where the money's going to and be able to find where the bad guys are at. Um, it becomes virtually impossible on online currency. The whole infrastructure is designed to essentially make you uh, make you anonymous so that you can't track where the money's going to and where you're being able to pull it out from. Um, so it makes law enforcement very difficult to go and nab the bad guys now, um, you know, specifically because of this. And you know, Bitcoin isn't necessarily the most user intuitive, um, you know, currency to be able to go and pay things. But you know, these attackers give you step by step instructions of what you need to do in order to pay through Bitcoin. Um, there are ways of using your credit card. There are ways of doing wire transfers, you know, things like that to purchase Bitcoins on the Bitcoin market and then transfer to specific um, people, um, you know, that will eventually receive the money. Once they confirm that, they usually give you your encryption key and then you can decrypt all the files themselves. Um, but you know, Bitcoin itself has made it, made made it for law enforcement, you know, extremely difficult to go and and, and track. And it's uh, you know, ransomware is, is definitely one of the largest um, growing markets that we see in the hacking industry. I mean, you have you know really good hackers that are really good at programming, 
you know, essentially licensing software to maybe not as good hackers that are trying to send mass campaigns out to infect people. And so you have these really good hackers making a ton of money off of a whole distribution network, um, you know, to, to be able to go in and, and get a larger, you know, payout uh, from these from these types of hackers. So it's, it's growing every day. Definitely a huge pandemic that we're seeing in the security industry. We're speaking to David Kennedy, hacking expert and founder and CEO of Trusted Sec. David, the inevitable question after an incident like this is, uh, what can we do to stop this and prevent this? But even uh, from a layman's perspective, someone like me, I'm like, my guess, this is going to be like when there's a low level or when there's just a, a terrorist attack somewhere that is low skill, low level, low planning. And people say, how do we stop it? I'm like, it's very hard to stop. This might require some technical know-how to do this hacking, but I'm also assuming there's not that much you can really do other than just, well, you tell me. What what can you do to try to protect yourself, and what can the government do to try to stop this and also track these people down? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, for, for home users, um, you know, the, if you're using Microsoft Windows, it's highly recommended that you go to your Windows update settings and update your systems right now. Um, that will that will the Microsoft has released a patch um, that fixes this specific one. Now that doesn't prevent you know all ransomware, um, just this specific one. Um, you know for your home users, you know you need to be really careful on what you're clicking on, um, things that you're downloading. Um, you know attackers try to entice people with urgency, like hey your your Amazon package has been rerouted, or you need to click this immediately because your credit card was declined. Um, you know there are different tactics that people use. Um, so be careful um, of where you're getting emails from. Check the, the what we call the domain where the where the actual email is coming from or the link is from, and make sure it's actually coming from Adobe or Microsoft or Amazon or whomever is claiming it. Now, for for corporations, um, it becomes extremely difficult, um, you know, to to protect against these because corporations are getting hit all the time with with user-based attacks, and user-based attacks are where um, most of these attackers are really coming from. And so, you know, we we have in the security industry what we call a defense in-depth strategy, which is multiple layers of defense to try to prohibit these from running. And it is possible. Um, a lot of companies have, you know, a very good security posture, but it requires having a good understanding around the types of protections that you need in order to really prevent uh, ransomware. You know, we do assessments all the time for corporations trying to identify exactly, you know, what's the best route for them to be able to protect against these types of attacks and what they need to do uh, to successfully protect these in the future. And there, there are you know, methods of being able to go and do that. It just requires having an understanding around around these methods. Um, the last point on that is the, the government piece. You know, the, the, the government really, um, unfortunately, can't protect us in the United States uh, from this. You know, the, you know, the NSA is, is tasked with foreign intelligence. You know, the FBI and CIA have different missions. Um, you know, the FBI most specifically is, is the ones that are, that are trying to go after this. But, you know, it, it takes them several, several years to even go after some of the bad guys. I mean, you're talking... Once they know exactly where they're coming from, and they have to slip up. I mean, they have to mess up once, you know, to, for these for, for the FBI to go and find them. And it takes a lot for that to happen, a lot of workforce and manpower. You know, it takes years and years and years of paperwork, extradition laws, you know, everything that you're dealing with to actually go and nab these bad guys. Um, so your, your chances of getting busted as a hacker is extremely low right now, unfortunately, uh, which is why you've seen such a big boom in this. So unfortunately, we're not going to see much from the U.S. government. It's really up to us to try to protect ourselves. And I'm assuming, by the way, if, if the hacker is in like Russia, I mean, not to always be, not to be yeah, adding to the Russia scaremongering, they're they're not even, yeah, they're not even going to extradite, right? So you know, no, if you, you're not getting them, most of them are tied to the government. 
Most of them are tied to the government. Well, that's even scarier. Uh, but yeah, there's there's nothing there. So so this is a scam that's working for people to enrich themselves, and it's unlikely there'll be consequences for it. And look, this this is real. This is scary stuff. This is once they start shutting down hospitals. I mean, uh, just last one for you, David. Uh, I mean, how, how much worse can this get? I mean, what are some of the once they're shutting down hospital networks? I feel like we're entering a new phase here where hackers are going to be literally holding people's lives hostages and not just their data. Yeah, this is this is something that, uh, you know, the security industry has been warning about for several years. Um, we've been doing a lot of research in the medical field specifically and around um, what we call, um, you know, industrial control systems and water treatment facilities, you know, what we call critical infrastructure. And it's really, really vulnerable right now. And, you know, we're, we're out here saying, hey, everybody, you got all these issues right now. And, and unfortunately, these organizations um, haven't been taking security as seriously. Hospitals are the worst uh, when it comes to security, like literally uh, one of the worst when it comes to, the, to actually protecting information as well as protecting, you know, loss of life systems. Um, so, you know, the, the, the private sector and, and hospitals, um, you know, industrial control systems, manufacturing companies, they need to do a much better job at security. They have to do a better job. And hopefully, you know, this is an unfortunate situation. This is in no way, shape, or form a condoning of it. But hopefully this is a rude awakening um, to this to these specific industries that they need to step up and they need to do more to protect their patients. David Kennedy is hacking is a hacking expert and founder and CEO of Trusted Sec. Uh, David, uh, excellent stuff from you today. Thank you so much for calling in and we'll have you back. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Have a good day. And, and hopefully uh, some people get some sleep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir. Uh, team, we are going to hit a quick break here, but it is Friday. We got news to talk about. We got action movie quotes. If you want to try your hand at that, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. Tommy in Ohio. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friend. What is up? Buck Sexton, how you doing, my friend? Shields high, my friend. Shields high, buddy. I'm good. What's up? Hey, I have a little theory for you that I'd like to run by you. By all means. Uh, I believe that this isn't really about Trump. I believe, or President Trump, I should say, I believe that this is because the Democrats, the leftists, are not in in Hillary is not in office. I believe that this, everything that's going on right now, would be happening if it were President Cruz, if it were President Carson, if it were President Fiorina, or the governor of my state, you know, President Kasich. Oh gosh, no! Good heavens, no! Uh, no. Oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no! Don't even, don't even speak such. This is like Voldemort. Don't even say it. I, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know what? I want. To, I'd love to take Kasich out myself. You know, but. And, you know, we got what we got. But I think that this really isn't about Trump. It's, it's just about I did hear that the Democrat Party does want one party rule. They want it. They want it. They want rule over all of us. They want to silence people like you. They want to silence people like several others that some of whom you have uh, been a, a guest host for. Uh, yeah, and that's well, not since, since I've guest hosted for Glenn, Rush, and Sean, yeah, I've got, there's a there, there are a few folks there that uh, that the left would love to silence for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you're one you 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 are one of the highest ones. 
I, I just wanted to let you know that uh, I did sign up for your newsletter on the new uh, on the oh, new dot com. Thank you so much. We, we haven't started it. We we haven't started it yet. But when we do, you'll be receiving it. But we're we it's in the works. We got a lot of a lot of projects uh, flying around at the same time. But Tommy in Ohio, thank you for calling in, my friend. Shields, hi, appreciate it. Um, so what else? Oh, I, I we've have we had did we have Lauren on this show? We had her on this show, right? Okay. So uh, I can't remember always if we've had a guest here on on uh, Buck Sexton of the American Hour, if it's just from the, the Buck Sexton show in the past. There's a, a young lady with a very substantial social media following, and uh, she used to be, a, now she's just an independent journalist. She used to be affiliated with the Rebel.TV, I think, which is the Canadian, is that right, right? Re- Rebel.media, yeah, whatever, close enough, um, which is the successor organization, I think, to Sun News which was the Canadian ant- or the Canadian version of either Fox News or The Blaze, depending on who you talk to. Uh, but Lauren Southern saw this on HeatStreet.com now. She is, according to HeatStreet, we'll have to see if she'll come on the show. This is, this is wow, she's traveling for this stuff. Uh, she was detained by the Italian Coast Guard. Ciao. Like, you know, I could just see them with a little motorboat and everything going around and Scusi. Um, but yeah, uh, the Italian Coast Guard detained her. This is from Heat Street. After she was caught trying to stop refugee slash migrant boats from coming into the country, uh, she was in a boat with a group called Generation Identitaire, Generation Identity, which is a right wing anti immigration French youth group attempting to physically block boats full of people coming from North Africa. They were joined by others from multiple European countries, including Italy and Austria. Uh, and the site says it's basically the alt-right version of Animal Planet's Whale Wars. Wow. She's at a boat off the coast of Italy trying to stop migrant boats from coming in. How does that, do they like, do they ram the boats? How do they do that? Um, but she's been detained by the, uh, that's quite a story. You know, I feel like though being detained by the Italian Coast Guard, you probably sit there with an artisan, uh, incredibly soft, maybe even like silk blend blanket across your shoulders and a tiny cup of incredible espresso. And everyone's just like, uh, hey, you comfy? You like an espresso? And you're like, yeah, I love it. It's great. I'm sure the Italian Coast Guard has some fantastic hospitality. I'm just saying. Uh, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We have uh, a story to talk about in a few minutes here that involves your favorite, Hillary Clinton. Oh, yes, Hillary Clinton. Stay with me. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Got Sade in West Virginia on WWVA on the line. What's up? How are you, Buck? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. Um. I just wanted to say a, a few words about Comey. What what I think should have happened when uh, President Trump took over was every Democrat should have been fired, just like the previous administrations have done. Clinton fired every every uh, lawyer that was a yeah. Cl- cleaning house for the U.S. attorneys is uh, is standard operating procedure. And you know, you know, Sade, I, I would also add that we tell ourselves that it's because of enforcement priorities, and I think that's. A lot of that is a convenient little fiction because we don't really want to grapple with the truth. And the truth is that 
the DOJ is a political instrument now, just like uh, the Congress is, and just like everything else in the government is. Exactly, and I, I think the uh, the FBI has been turned into one, and uh, and that's the shame of it. Uh, um, I'm ex-military, but I was in the military a long, long time ago, back in the 50s and 60s, and uh, things were a whole lot different then. Um, but to listen to the way the, uh, the uh, military is doing things, and particularly once Obama fired all of the uh, generals, he fired generals right and left. It was crazy. I remember there was a, what was it, uh, General McChrystal was fired yep. because of a Rolling Stone piece uh, and in which someone said something that wasn't that nice about Obama's uh, capabilities as a commander-in-chief of the military, and they, they fired McChrystal, who was one of the uh, considered to be, although a lot of this, it's it's tough to know at that level with the military brass, who's just good at cultivating relationships with reporters and who's truly the... Yeah, who's truly a great military mind, but McChrystal was was widely respected. I, I knew people uh, in in the uh, in the military that you know that I know and trust, and they thought that he was a very sharp guy. And they, yeah, they they canned McChrystal because of uh, it wasn't even that bad. I can't remember what it was, but whatever they said, oh, whatever he said oh, about Obama. Well, and another thing too, the I don't know whether it's whether it's just abysmal ignorance uh, of the left or what, but. History is so easy to find and to know what you're talking about, but everything that I bring up is a is a big lie, and and it's so easily provable. And I can't understand why they just keep doing it when we can prove they're lying. And when Trump said uh, fake news and then proved it, everybody says, "Oh, there's no such things like that." But he's right again. Well, if, if there are no consequences, if there are no consequences for lying, lying actually becomes a very effective political tool. And look, lying is is a is a constant part of politics, even in in happier and more sane times. But uh, these yeah. days, it feels like there's way too much of it going on. But uh, say, thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you from West Virginia. All right, um, the Clinton Foundation. Now, I'm not I'm not doing a whataboutism here where we divert, and this is a common tactic, right, where you divert from something you don't want to discuss to something that you'd rather discuss. And this is uh, a, a common a common tactic you'll see in a lot of the different media outlets when there's a story that the host isn't that into. They'll just say, well, you know, what about so-and-so? Or what about what this person did? Or what about that? Um, the Clint- uh, Hillary Clinton is no longer, well... I don't know, actually. She might run for something again. I was going to say she's no longer a viable political candidate. But in this this time, you know, this day and age, who knows? You know, she may uh, she may run for mayor in New York. I don't think she could run for a third time to be president. I think the entitlement factor and the sense that she's the only person the Democrats uh, can run for president other than Obama over the course of of gosh, uh, how, how many electoral cycles? Um, but she still is a very important player in Democrat circles. She still has a lot of sway, and um, I haven't forgotten, and I'm sure you haven't either, uh, what was going on with the Clinton Foundation. As a little quick review here. Oh, Clinton Foundation's for helping people. No, it's really not. It's a giant uh, slush fund that was being operated for the benefit of the Clinton family and their cronies. And this is where we get into the whataboutism, because I know that people will say, 
people will say that th- this isn't a fair comparison, but I think part of why the criticism of the Trumps and the Trump family and their continued business interests, because uh, the media is always, oh, you know, Jared Kushner had a meeting at this place, or there's a Chinese investor in, in this deal, and Jared Kushner spoke to the Chinese recently. They're, they're always trying to push this. And uh, you can't use previous bad behavior to excuse all future behavior that could be construed as similar. But when you look at what the Clintons were doing and how the media was just playing so dumb on this, uh, you know, you should go back and, and just watch some of the debates that were had or, or even better, some of the, the straight news coverage of the Clinton Foundation over the course of the uh, election. And just, you know, r- reporters were acting like they, they couldn't put two and two together. You know, like, well, you know, sure, you know, Hillary was looking at this Russian company's ability to get 20 percent of the U.S. uranium stockpile. And and the a Russian bank was paying her husband five hundred thousand dollars for a, or maybe it was eight hundred thousand dollars. Might have been eight hundred, but it was definitely at least five hundred thousand dollars for a speech at the time. But I mean, that's not a conflict of interest there. I mean, sure, the Clinton Foundation is running around and taking huge sums of money from foreign governments while Hillary Clinton is secretary of state, and they're not disclosing this, and they, they weren't initially disclosing the numbers, and then they gave ranges on some of it. Uh, sure, that you know, that may be, but it's not a big deal, right? That's what they eventually came back to, that it's just not that big of a deal, and it really is. Uh, the Clintons managed to... They pollute so many things, but they polluted charitable giving. They made charitable giving uh, uh, a dodge. They made it a a hustle, a scam, a scheme uh, in order to, one, fund the Clinton lifestyle and for U.S. donors, of course, with a tax break involved, uh, to fund their travel all over the world and to be a a really an untaxed and unregulated Super PAC for all things Clinton under the guise of, oh, we're doing all this fantastic work around the world. I mean, with five minutes on the Clinton Foundation website, I spent some time poking around on the on the various Clinton Foundation projects. You'd see that everything that they are uh, committed to in, in one form or another is, is kind of nebulous. You know, it's murky. It's it's like, well, you know, we're going to help we're going to help women in poverty around the world. All right, what does that mean? If you say you're going to build wells for people so they have clean drinking water in a portion of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, you can tell your donors, well, we, we put up uh, a thousand wells, right? Or we there are metrics you can be gauged by, and people therefore can also know how much of the money they're donating to you is really going to what would a, what a normal person would consider to be charitable projects, like I'm no stranger, by the way, to the, the games that people play with charity, you know, here in uh, in New York City, where a lot of them are an excuse to throw a party. Look, if you throw a great party, but you raise a ton of money for a good cause, more power to you. But there have been some uh, charitable foundations that were clearly just a front for throwing parties, uh, funding the lifestyle, the people involved, giving out not necessarily no show, but low show, meaning uh, incredibly stress-free and uh, pretty easy jobs to people, um, giving people board seats on charity. So so charity is, 
you know, there are real charities, right? There's International Red Cross, and you sit and you go through all the different real charities that are out there that are doing great things for people and, and should be applauded and are and are fantastic places uh, to donate money. But then there's the, the more the social charity, and then there's social political charity. And that's what the Clinton Foundation was. It was a, like I said, it was a scam. And it was so obviously a scam they raised, I think it was $2 billion uh, by the time Hillary was, was running, and that's a lot of money. They spent something like $50 million on travel for employees, which is a lot of flying around on private jets. And uh, there are all kinds of ways that, you know, the Clintons would fly somewhere on a private jet, do some Clinton Foundation business, and then, it's a, and then they write it off as, oh, well, that's the Clinton Foundation. Well, that's a great way to fund your, you know, to fund your travel all over the world, right? Anytime you raise all this money in this huge slush fund, and then when you want to go somewhere, you just call somebody up or you say we're going to have a, a luncheon to talk about Clinton Foundation business, and now, you know, maybe a, a hundred fifty thousand dollar flight on a private jet is the foundation's expense. So these are the kind of games they're playing. Media was like, oh, I don't understand. I mean, it's like the charity. I don't, you know, I can't figure this out. You know, and Hillary, she's like, I love people. I'm a people person. You know, she was just being Hillary. That's why she didn't win. They can tell you it's Russia and it's Comey all day, but really she didn't win because it's Hillary. I'm a peaceful people person. Uh, but we've got some reporting here. <laughs> I get so into the Clinton thing that I forget there's a, there's a, there's a news story. You know what? I, I actually, let me, let me hit this break and I want to tell you about uh, some solid evidence that we can present that not only was the Clinton Foundation largely just a, a scam for the Clintons and their brand, and that was the uh, impetus behind this whole thing, and it's just disgraceful what was able to go, what was uh, allowed to go on there. But the pay-for-play accusations or the, the uh, accusations of corruption that were um, implied by so many or were, were made, but without hard evidence of a specific quid pro quo, which is usually necessary for real corruption charges. Uh, well, the Bangladeshi prime minister has come out here. We've got a piece by our friend Sarah Carter over at Circa News. Bangladeshi prime minister says that uh, Hillary Clinton personally pressured her to take action on behalf of a Clinton Foundation donor while Clinton was secretary of state. This would be considered a big no-no. I will give you the details. So Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation, my friends, we knew that there was influence being peddled. It was obvious, right? We knew that this massive charity was a front not entirely. I'm sure they gave grants. They gave some percentage of the money they raised overall to real charities and did some good things. Um, but that doesn't excuse any corruption or any influence peddling that may have been going on alongside that. Think of it this way. If you're operating a uh, grocery store, but out of the back, you're you're selling, uh, you know, copious amounts of weed, um, that's still a problem. Right? Just because you're doing a nice, honorable, uh, legal thing in the front doesn't mean that it can be a you know a, a party or I- illegal stuff going on in the back. So, um, so that you know that you you look at the uh, Clinton Foundation and you can tell that something is up. You know that there's some issue going on. 
But let's talk about the Bangladeshi prime minister for a second, shall we? This is from our friend Sarah Carter over at Circa News. While sec- this is a quote from the piece. While Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton made a personal call to pressure Bangladesh's prime minister to aid a donor to her husband's charitable foundation, despite federal ethics laws that require government officials to recuse themselves from matters that could impact their spouse's business. The office of Bangladesh Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina confirmed to Circa that Mrs. Clinton called her office in March 2011 to demand that Dr. Muhammad Yunus, a 2006 Nobel Peace Prize winner, be restored to his role as chairman of the country's most famous microcredit bank, Grameen Bank. The bank's nonprofit, Grameen America, which Eunice chairs, has given between 100000 and 250000 to the Clinton Global Initiative. Grameen Research, which is chaired by Eunice, has donated between 25000 and 50000 according to the Clinton Foundation website. Uh, so, you know, you're talking about a real chunk of change here that has been donated uh, to the Clinton Global Initiative, which, oh, I should note, has been shut down. Isn't that interesting? That happened right after Hillary lost the election, by the way. Let's zero in on that for a second, shall we? And let's review this little bit of news here on uh, on Circa.com. Uh, so the acting, or sorry, the secretary, <laughs> a lot of acting, you know, acting uh, attorney general, acting uh, FBI director, a lot of that this week. The former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, uh, got on the phone and tried to keep this guy in a job that he wasn't supposed to be in and tried to pressure the prime minister of Bangladesh, a country in South Asia nestled up to the northeast of India, um, formerly called East Pakistan. We could talk about this another day, but... When when India split, it split into three countries. Oh, it split into three main countries: East Pakistan and West Pakistan um, were the names of the countries originally, and then East Pakistan became Bangladesh later. And Pakistan is still Pakistan, and you have very uh, tense relations, obviously, between uh, India and Pakistan that continue to this day. Uh, and that separation uh, was incredibly bloody, and there was a lot. There were pogroms, anti-Hindu and anti-Muslim, and a tremendous amount of violence. Uh, back in the days of partition after the Second World War. Maybe uh, worth getting into history for another day. Just It's interesting stuff. Uh, Brutal, rough, but uh, historically very noteworthy. All right, back to uh, Bangladesh here. Um, The prime minister gets a call from Hillary Clinton who says, hey, this guy needs to stay on in his role as chairman of this uh, microcredit bank. Microcredit, by the way, is is a big thing in the international community, for uh, helping developing countries. It's, it's a very, um, uh, you know, very interesting situation where you, well, I don't have to get into what microcredit is for right now. Um, I just want to say that this is, it's a lot of people talk about this and it's uh, considered kind of a, a, a do-gooder and internationalist field. But this guy was probably making some decent money being the, uh, head of this bank point here is that he's a donor to the Clinton foundation and Hillary Clinton's getting on the phone and saying that this guy, he's beyond the age limit. The age limit is 60 and he's 70 years old. 
And uh, this uh, Hillary Clinton's trying to pressure a prime minister of a foreign country into making a decision that directly benefits someone who is a donor to the Clinton Foundation. This is a this is a clear ethical lapse. And this is what many of us were sure was happening all along while Hillary Clinton was secretary of state and had set up things like the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, which closed soon after, as I said, was sh- was shuttered soon after Hillary didn't win the election um, because it was set up mostly to tackle, quote, international problems so that there could be all these international donors that could give money to something and it would be slightly separate from the larger Clinton Foundation pool of cash, right? But, and it was addressing very uh, broad stuff, you know, let's address women's education. On a global level, to address women's education is is kind of like saying, let's address, well, it'd be like saying, we're, we're going to fix poverty. Well, on a global level, good luck. That's going to be a, a pretty big ask. Um, now, I know what people are going to say about this. Oh, you know, it, it, this isn't that big a deal, and is this the best you can do? If it was really set up to be corrupt, if it was really set up so that uh, we could, or so that the Clintons could benefit from running this charity and selling political favors and using influence, wouldn't there be bigger cases than some guy who wants to be in a microcredit bank, well, be the chairman of a microcredit bank in Bangladesh, and I would say to you, well, the, here's one of the problems with corruption, especially when it's global. Uh, you can't exactly expect any whistleblowers to come forward. Anybody who asked Hillary Clinton for a favor when she was secretary of state, whether they got one or not, but let's assume they got the favor. Uh, anybody who asked is not going to want to come forward and be like, oh, yes, I was uh, part of that scam. Uh, I donated money to the Clinton Foundation so that I could try to get an influential policy decision that would help my business or even help my country. Uh, This is why when people talk about Trump and Russia and collusion, uh, a lot of us say, and I know there's what, what about ism is something we have to be on guard for. We shouldn't just always say, well, what about, you know, what about the Clintons? What about Obama? But the Clintons are running a global influence peddling operation. And the media was complicit in the whole thing in the sense that they pretended to be just completely uh, incapable of making the most basic and rudimentary um, conclusions about coming to the most basic and rudimentary conclusions about what the Clinton Foundation was really up to. It was selling influence, everybody. We've got our first case here, but there will be more. Just give it some time. And those donations to the Clinton Foundation, by the way, are going to be getting pretty lean soon. More coming. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. Well, I mentioned it before because I saw the piece about uh, Lauren Southern, independent uh, journalist uh, and also author, how she was detained by the Italian maritime police or italian coast guard because she's part of where she was on a boat that well i don't even have to give the details lauren southern just called in hey lauren what's up (laughs) hey buck uh i'm good i'm just heading back from uh the catania port with a bunch of activists from all around europe right now so we're just in the car and i am not in police custody which is awesome yeah uh okay so i saw that piece and when i was on air i mentioned it before people have some of the 
background, but I didn't know we'd be able to get you on the air so quickly. So tell me uh, what happened. And oh, no, sorry, first, before we get into your arrest and what happened, what are you doing there? Well, for three days, we've been tracking boat movements that are boats going down to the Libyan coast to pick up tons and tons of migrants and illegally traffic them into Europe. And we've been trying to find out which ones are leaving with empty crews to go and pick up uh, people so that we could stage kind of a protest and I could film it and get what was going on. And they were just going to basically put one boat in front of one of these bigger boats and legally they're supposed to have to stop. So we tried doing that tonight and we had the flares and everything ready and uh, <laughs> that's basically what happened tonight is we tried to have a standoff with the Aquarius uh, boat that was going out to the Libyan coast and we were detained by the Coast Guard for trying to stop a boat that is illegally trapping or trafficking migrants. So wait, the, the way that you, you you throw your boat in front of the, in front of the migrant trafficking boat, and the idea being that I mean, aren't they just, I mean, this might be kind of a dumb question. Aren't they just going to try to go around you? Well, that's, no, actually they tried to go straight through us, oh. which they're not supposed to do. But the thing is, it's interesting because the law just doesn't apply to these migrant trafficking boats, apparently, in any sense. They just let them do what they want. The government is perfectly fine with their illegal trafficking, and they don't have to stop. So Wait, did, 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 they, did the Italian Coast Guard arrest just you and not the migrant traffickers? Oh no! Of course not. They're they're helping the migrant traffickers. What? That's that yes. seems great. I figured you guys were all you know. It's like after a bar fight, and understandably, sometimes the cops initially just arrest like kind of everybody, and they figure it out. I figured they're arresting everybody. You got arrested, but the migrant traffickers did not. Luckily, we were just detained, so we weren't brought into a jail cell or anything. But we have forty-eight hours to find out what we're going to be potentially charged with. So. We're just hanging out here in Catania, waiting to see what we're going to be charged with, uh, which will be interesting. Probably we're going to get in the most trouble for the flare we had, but we're not sure yet. But yeah, the migrant boats here, the trafficking, they don't get in trouble for anything. It's a huge, huge situation. They're going out of the ports here every single day. We spent a long time doing research, calling government organizations and NGOs, trying to find out where and where they are. And there are tons of these boats every single day that the government doesn't doesn't keep a track of and doesn't stop so we figured we'd do it on our own <laughs> what is uh generation identitaire generation identitaire is a youth movement in europe right now that believes in preserving the culture of different european countries so they're like a right-wing kind of youth movement that in france they'd be associated with the front national kind of thing and um they're just like a cultural European cultural support right-wing movement. And and so and they, they do a they, lot of activism. Okay. Um, how did you get linked up with them? When I was uh, reporting in Paris on the elections, I wanted to see a bit of what their movement was like, because I've seen a bunch of their actions. They do some crazy stuff, like they'll put burkas on some of the statues there, and they even built a giant uh, wall to block out migrants from coming into the Calais jungle, and they called this action Defend Calais. So they do a lot of stuff to, to tell Tell people about the Calais jungle real quick, because I'm sure that, that that's, I mean, I, I know it's where it's where people that are waiting to, what is it, cross into the UK in in the, the port of Calais in France. There's, there's this whole migrant encampment there, but tell folks about that. Yeah, it's crazy. I've actually been there last summer, but they were storing thousands and thousands of migrants here 
that would just be waiting. They'd be waiting because it's kind of close to London. So they had like 3,000 to 5,000 migrants waiting near the city of Calais just to get to London. But they completely trashed the place. It became a total hellhole to go to. When I was there, I was speaking with the migrants, which none of, none of which were from Syria. You can look up my video on it. I only found one person from Syria there. Uh, but most of them were migrants from Afghanistan, Eritrea, different um, North African countries, Iran, and they were all internally fighting. They had a religious battle going on. They had extremist groups within the Calais jungle, and the people living in Calais, France, were horrified at this area, and it just became a complete no-go zone uh, in the middle of nowhere in Calais. And um, so Generation Identitaire went to go and stop the craziness that was going on. Oh, and it's free by a highway as well, where a bunch of lorries go by, so all these lorries were constantly being attacked by migrants. We're speaking to uh, to Lauren Southern. She is in Italy right now. She's an independent journalist, um, and she was detained temporarily by the Italian Coast Guard for trying to prevent illegal migrant migrant trafficking into Italy from the North African coast. Uh, Lauren, what's the de- what's the debate like right now in Italy with regard to immigration and and the migrant wave coming in from predominantly from the Muslim world? <laughs> what debate? People don't even talk about it. If you talk about it, you get in trouble in Europe. It's Generation Identitaire. They, I've been speaking to the activists here. They, they get attacked constantly by uh, radical antifa on the street. You can be slandered by the media constantly. I mean, looking at the media that's come out of this, people, people from the mainstream media are saying that I'm shooting flares at drowning refugees and just exaggerating the hell out of this situation. So. There's the, the conversation is completely shut down, and it's just kind of this unspoken illegal trafficking that just happens, and everyone's supposed to be okay with it. Do you have some sense of what the numbers are so far this year? Have you talked to other people in the group or, or experts over in, in Italy about how many migrants are moving, are, are, are moving in? Well, I can't say how many uh, have moved in this year specifically, but what I can tell you is a report was just came out uh, from the German government saying that there are around six to eight million ready to come in to Europe this summer, waiting on the borders of countries like Libya and Turkey, and they are just working out all of the details of how they're going to get into Europe. So that that is a confirmed German report saying there are millions and millions waiting on the border just to come in this and, summer. And, and is the Italian government's official position that they do not allow migrants to come in, by the way? Is this a, they turn a blind eye to a situation, or is it anyone can arrive and claim asylum and then will work out their claim, but that means they're all going to stay kind of a situation? Well, their official position doesn't really matter when their official action is they do nothing, right? The Coast Guard was after us, not those trafficking boats. And when we uh, were calling government organizations, what, what we did, essentially, was we pretended to be journalists that wanted to take pictures of these migrant boats, and then we called these government organizations and NGOs, and they gave us all the info we needed, and the government organizations were like, oh, yeah, sure, let's get you some photos of migrants, that's awesome. They weren't telling us this is an illegal act, they weren't telling us that uh, th- these things aren't allowed, they were happy to help us. Uh, Lauren, what's well, by the way? Where can people go to to check out what you're what you're up to with uh, your journalism in Europe, and and then also uh, what have you got going on next? I mean, I, I'm like scared. The next phone call I'm going to get is is that you're in in northern Syria just checking out the scene. But first, tell us where we can see your stuff. 
All right, you can find me at Lauren underscore Southern, and that would be my Twitter page, or you can just Google me, Lauren Southern, and find my Facebook or YouTube. I'm all over the place. And as for what's up next, well, this, this mission uh, took me being kind of deep undercover so that the NGOs wouldn't find out where we were. So I don't know if I can update you on where I'll be next because uh, it might be another crazy mission like this one. <laughs> okay. Well, Lauren, we appreciate you making some time calling in from Italy after her uh, run-in and detainment with the Italian Coast Guard trying to stop migrants from infiltrating illegally into Europe. Lauren Southern, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Buck. Uh, all right, team. We are there. We go. <laughs> team Buck is international, folks. Uh, we are going to hit a break here, and we'll be right back. Maybe we've started to reach a point where there will be um, changes in the social justice uh, echo chambers. Um, I'm starting to see cracks. I'm starting to see the beginnings of doubt. It's very small and it's very limited. Um, but I've uh, there are a few bits of evidence that I would point to here, including a feminist YouTuber named Lacey Green, who is now uh, not sure that social justice orthodoxy is all it's crack up to be. And then there's also a posting by a a leftist blogger uh, talking about the back channel. Um, But you know what? I might have to put those on hold uh, because we've been trying to get our friend Sarah Carter on the I promise you I will return to those subjects probably on maybe today, maybe on Monday, because we've got our friend Sarah Carter on the line now, award-winning national security and war correspondent. She reports for Circa News, and she is behind that piece about the Bangladeshi Prime Minister and Hillary Clinton and asking for special favors for a Clinton Foundation donor. Sarah, thanks for making the time. Great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Buck. Thanks so much for having me on. So I I gave people the the broad strokes of what happened uh, with the Prime Minister of Bangladesh and Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State. Uh, What's been the the reaction to this? And and also, do you think you're going to be able to uncover more of these seemingly quid pro quo Hillary Clinton, Clinton Foundation transactions? Yeah, actually, we do. And I think it was quite significant that the uh, Bangladeshi uh, prime minister spoke out. I mean, this is this is the first time, really, that this has ever happened, where an official head of state has actually come forward and said, look, I was you know, I was in a sense being strong armed by the secretary of state for one of her donors. And, you know, despite whatever happened inside Bangladesh, because we understand that there's internal politics involved in this as well between the British, uh, I mean, between the prime minister of Bangladesh and Dr. Mohammed Yunus. I mean, it goes to show you how far the United States and we should question whether or not a secretary of state should actually be, be actively involved in in pressuring another foreign government for one of her friends and donors. And and I think this is the first time that that was really evident. Have you heard any any pushback from any of the Clinton defenders out there that this was uh, completely normal in the course of business, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely not, Buck. I mean, we asked repeatedly for comment for the story and we were basically ignored or denied comment. And uh, when we spoke to Dr. Mohammed Yunus's office, they did refer us to an old an old statement of his and where he said he had no plans uh, or intentions of being the managing director forever of Grameen Bank. 
so that was the bank that he was in charge of uh, at the time and the, and the one that he started, at, you know, with his microfinancing uh, department. But he, you know, the fact that that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and they wouldn't either confirm nor deny whether or not he had asked her personally to intercede for him. Uh, I think the question here is these ethical boundaries. I mean, whether it's criminal or not, I don't think so. But I think there are these ethical relations that we have to look at. How far are we willing to go when, you know, people who hold an, an essentially high political office are receiving funding like she did through her foundation, through the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative, and how far will they go and intercede with their job in politics, in, in the government, you know, for people that are donors? And I think that's something that's very questionable and something that uh, we're expecting more and more people to talk. Uh, that's all I can say at this point. We're speaking to Sarah Carter, national security correspondent and, and journalist for Circa News. Um, Sarah, have you been able to look into the Clinton Foundation yet and give us a sense as to uh, w- whether uh, it is changing dramatically now that Hillary Clinton is not going to be president? I mean, have, have we I know the Clinton Global Initiative shut down. Have we seen any other signs that their whole business model is in flux? I, I believe that their whole business model is in flux, uh, but they certainly don't want this to be haunting them. They certainly know that people are much more aware of what was going on in the past. And there are a number of reporters continuing to investigate, you know, the Clinton Foundation during her tenure as a secretary of state. So I, I believe that there is an absolute push to change things, to change the, the perception of the way things were, uh, the way things were, I guess, obtained and, and how they handled things in the past. But um, but that remains to be seen. I mean, we there's there's still time. Things are in flux. Uh, but I don't think that this is going away. I mean, I really think this is a story that people are going to continue to look at because her influence uh, influenced other countries. It influenced people that were donors. It influenced very important people and uh, very important policy issues. So I mean, that's something that we're looking at and and how that affected things on in the geopolitical scale and, and even down just to relationships between nations. So th- those are things that I think people are still questioning. And of course, those are things that people want to see stop in the future. I know when we, we spoke to Dr. Painter, Dr. Richard Painter, who was the lawyer under the Bush administration, and he was a supporter of Hillary Clinton during her campaign. One of the things that he said was, I don't believe that this instance is criminal but he said it is an example to show uh, why politicians should not be fundraising for anything, because even this perception of, of taking money for favors is just it's just plain wrong. It's unethical and it crosses all lines. And that was, you know, something that a supporter of Clinton uh, was very clear about with me. Sarah, we've only got a couple minutes left, but with somebody with your source network inside law enforcement, uh, military and intelligence circles, I, I have to ask. Well, what's really going on inside the FBI right now? We're, we're being told that there's, you know, there's a war of leaks is coming about uh, Comey and about Trump. And there's going to be and we're hearing different things about morale, who they support and everything else. What can you tell us about what's what's real in the FBI right now? Well, I can tell you this, uh, but from the sources that I've spoken to in the past, and, you know, I've written the story over and over again that there are. They have yet to find, and Trump is not under investigation, any evidence of collusion with 
President Trump or anyone right now in the government that's directly surrounding him and Russia. They are investigating people that were possibly connected to Trump, but not in the government. Okay, that 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 is that remains clear. But I can tell you within the FBI, there was division. I mean, there were a number of FBI agents and a good number of FBI agents. And I won't throw it out there just in case that were extremely frustrated with Director Comey when he decided not to press charges against Hillary Clinton or move forward with those charges. Right, with the uh, recommendation the, to the Attorney General to, to go, yeah. Exactly. With the recommendation to the Attorney General to pursue to pursue the case against, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, then-candidate Hillary Clinton. So there was a number of people that were frustrated. Andrew McCabe, uh, you know, according to many sources that I've spoke with, who is now the Deputy Director, was no big fan of Trump. Uh, whatsoever, and, and neither tr- uh, President Trump of him, uh, but he was very honest, and he admitted during those hearings uh, that there were people that were very frustrated with that. So I think that what we're going to see is a battle. This is an all-out battle of wills here between the White House and those people in the FBI that are loyalists to either the Obama or Clinton uh, folks and, and those that feel that they have been jilted by the Obama and Clinton team. So uh, we're going to see a lot more play out in the next few weeks, and I think it's going to surprise quite a few people. Sarah Carter, uh, National Security War Correspondent and Reporter for Circa News. Sarah, my friend, great to have you. Thanks, and have a fantastic weekend. Thank you so much, Buck. Same to you. Um, Team, Hour 3 is coming up. We're going to talk about automation, Luddites, Keith Olbermann. Oh, my. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. I'm Keith Olbermann and this is The Resistance. I appeal to the intelligence agencies and the governments of what is left of the free world, to them as entities, entireties, as bureaucracies making official decisions, and to the individuals who make decisions of conscience, to GCHQ and MI6 in the UK, to the BND in Germany, the DGSE in France, the ASIS in Australia, and even to the GRU in Russia, where they must already be profoundly aware that they have not merely helped put an amoral cynic in power here, but an uncontrollable one. Who's- <laughs> That's Keith Olbermann. That's Keith Olbermann, who's, who's still a guy who does media, everybody. He's still out there doing his thing. Um, this is... I don't, for for GQ magazine or something, uh, that's where I saw it. Uh, but for, first of all, I, I love that he, he's rattling off all of these with, with just utter seriousness. All of these intel agencies, which I'm sure he probably could have named two of them without having to go to the Google. Uh, but now he's he's deadly serious. He's so earnest in trying to save us all from the monstrosity of the Trump administration. You got to hear a little more of this. It's amazing whose madness is genuine and whose usefulness, even to them, is at an end. To all of them and to the world's journalists, I make this plea. We, the citizens of the United States of America, are the victims of a coup. We need your leaks, your information, your intelligence, your recordings, your videos, your conscience. The civilian government and the military of the United States are no longer in the hands of the people nor in the control of any responsible individuals on whom you can rely. The first step towards compromising our FBI occurred Tuesday with... Before we get into the call me stuff, yeah, a a coup has happened here. This is is Olbermann, who was paid, I think it was reported that he was paid $10 million a year 
to be on Al Gore's current TV, which uh, was terrible and which nobody wanted to watch and had a horrible viewership. And then he ended up uh, suing, I believe, current TV. Um, and this is after leaving MSNBC, where I know people who worked in the building when he was there, and they described they thought it was there was irony that he had this list of the worst person in the world because uh, quoting from an unnamed former MSNBC staffer, Keith Olbermann was in fact the worst person in the world. Um, so I I don't know him, so I can't say that you know one way or the other that's true about him personally, but professionally, this guy is just off his rocker. However, he is a voice among many that are pushing the most extreme, most crazy notions of what's happened in this country. And I would say to you that, you know, I'm sitting here and kind of laughing because he just shows it. There has been a coup. And it reminds me of that incredible, it really holds up, that Ben Affleck, um, that Ben Affleck Saturday Night Live sketch where he's like, Miss Precious Perfect, uh, the co-op board would not let me keep my cat, Miss Precious Perfect. Uh, and it was one of the best things I've ever seen Ben Affleck do. If you haven't seen it on SNL, his impersonation of Keith Olbermann is, is absolutely brilliant and spot on and, and fantastic. Um, but Olbermann is giving voice to what is increasingly a mainstream belief, which is that the presidency of the Trump administration is illegitimate it is a stolen presidency and uh, he's he's appealing to outside intelligence agencies to release compromat compromising information on and he specifically said the GRU which is the Russian military intelligence service I'm sure he doesn't know that he definitely doesn't know the difference in the SVR the foreign intelligence service of Russia the FSB the domestic intelligence apparatus and the GRU the military intelligence apparatus, but that's why I'm here, to know stuff, because people like Keith Olbermann don't. Uh, but he is appealing to them to uh, help by releasing information that they may have achieved through illegal means, through illegal wiretaps, uh, through invasions of privacy. And by the way, I don't think this information exists. I don't think they have anything on Trump, which is perhaps the more important point here. But this now, among Democrats, passes for patriotism, uh, calling for foreign governments to give compromising information to the U.S. media, who will, of course, gleefully run with it and print it on their front pages. I have to say, I am increasingly um, negative on journalists in general and journalism as a profession in this country. Uh, I think that they act with a recklessness. I think that their hyper-partisanship has completely, as a profession, discredited uh, discredited them. And, and also now, I think it's laughable that you have the main media outlets, mainstream media outlets in this country, that even cling to some pretense of nonpartisan objectivity. That's preposterous. It is utterly silly. But they still cling to this. They still use this. And it's really because propaganda that can at least... Uh, hold out some belief uh, and and try to create some perception that it's not entirely partisan in its ends, that's more useful. It's more effective. Uh, but it's funny that Olbermann is asking for foreign collusion to undermine the government of his own country and thinks that this is now patriotism. And don't think for a moment that he doesn't have followers, that he doesn't have uh, those who would agree with him. He was 
the star at MSNBC, which tells you a lot about that channel. He was the major entity there, and then that that tentpole position uh, was taken over, meaning the biggest anchor that holds up the tent for all the rest was taken over uh, by Rachel Maddow. Uh, But he was very well compensated over there. I mean, he was a multi-multi-millionaire many times over and was treated with reverence by the left. He, He was the intellectual anchor of the left for a while. And he's a loon. I mean, on top of, from what I've been told, just not a nice guy, a really nasty person. Uh, and we should start to care a little bit more about that, especially as we realize that the news media is uh, largely personality-driven now. Uh, people who are huge jerks, I, I think their fans, their watchers, their listeners should care. I think that nastiness should matter and should count against you. But I digress. Also, a side note, I was over at, at Fox today um, with, uh, I was on Trish Reagan's show, who's, by the way, fantastic uh, professionally and, and is a really kind and, and excellent human being. Um, but I was on her show and, and we were, were sitting there and I was talking to one of the other guests and it just came up that, you know, this isn't even the first time that you've had the Democrats' main storyline be about a presidency, be that it was stolen, be that somebody took this away from the rightful, I don't know, the rightful owner or the rightful victor, the Democrat. You'll remember that it was the story we were told in 2000 with Bush versus Gore, Bush v. Gore. Um, they believe that Bush's motorcade on Inauguration Day had people pelting it with stuff. They believe that Bush stole the election from Al Gore, even though there was never a single recount that showed Al Gore ahead. Um, in fact, there was that HBO movie recount that was supposed to just show in completely uh, falsified and decontextualized detail why Al Gore was, in fact, the victor in 2000. But this is not a new theme. This is not a new story. The Democrats have a tenuous grasp of reality and are just really bad, sore losers. Uh, the only thing that stopped the Bush stole the election narrative was 9-11. And there was a, a moment lasted for maybe a month when the country, even the media that hated Bush, had to rally around the president because we were under attack and there was a recognition of that. Um, but then they went to Bush was a war criminal, of course, um, on top of all the terrible things they said about him. So it's not that new what we're seeing right now. It's just a new version of what we've been told before, which is that Democrats can't really lose elections. And then you've got this guy, Olbermann, with the unilateral firing of its director by the president, prompted by the attorney general, both of whom are or were at least in theory possibly to be under investigation by the FBI as led by that director they fired. Our CIA is run by one of that president's political appointees. The first national security advisor was fired and may have been a Russian stooge. Okay. Um, Every CIA director is a political appointee, so that's nothing new or interesting. And uh, the Russian stooge accusation with Flynn, well, Flynn was fired. Um, Keith Olbermann is obviously trying to gain relevance, but just understand, we should keep this in mind. He is uh, indicative of a mindset now on the left that is that the more extreme, the more undermining, the more um, nasty you can be about Donald Trump, the likelier it is that you will gain a following or you will build on your following and you'll be relevant in the conversation. Uh, this is why we're going to continue to see this. I mean, the, the notion that somehow this investigation is going to stop and then eventually and, and we'll be in a place where 
we all accept that there's the, the truth is what comes out of it. I mean, this is this is the narrative. This is the anti-Trump narrative, the Russia thing. Until they get something else, and I don't think they're going to get anything nearly as interesting to them as this. This is the narrative. Um, so, anyway, team, um, I'm going to hit a quick uh, break here. We'll come back on the flip side. Let's talk about jobs and automation and possible job losses. Welcome back, team. There's going to be some times when I have to uh, disagree with an aspect of the administration, and I'm going to be upfront with you about it. Uh, when they do things that I don't like, I'll tell you, and when they make a policy decision with which I disagree, I'll be straightforward about it, um, because that's my promise to you, and if I'm not going to do that, well, then what's what's the point, right? I mean, if you're just... If someone's just going to sit around and be a mouthpiece for the administration, there there are literally people who have that as their job. They work in the West Wing, press corps. I mean, not the press corps. Well, the press corps in the Obama administration may have had that job. But now it's just uh, Spicer and uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and, and the rest of the crew in the West Wing. They have the job of officially representing the administration's point of view. I don't do that. So uh, on Jeff Sessions and ending... Now, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, he's the highest law enforcement officer in the country, and he put out a letter today, which I read, saying that they will end the Obama administration policy with regard, or guidance, really, with regard to sentencing and leniency in federal criminal sentencing. Now, uh, I come at this from a, from a variety of uh, of different angles. One of them is that I think that we have far too many uh, federal criminal statutes, and no person that knows how many statutes there are really ever argues this with me. Uh, it's uh, it's quite honestly a scandal that we have thousands of laws on the books that are uh, criminal laws, federal criminal laws, and when you look at some of the penalties for them, I mean, if you're caught up now in even a, a an investigation of accounting practices or you know if you're involved in an investigation a federal investigation of uh, you know corporate malfeasance and you destroy documents uh, it is possible that you could face 20 years in federal prison for that under i believe it was under dodd frank uh that is just crazy right you don't now people say buck you don't get that but i don't like this game of giving the government the tool to crush anybody and in a federal prosecution, and so then you get all of these guilty pleas, which, of course, the prosecutorial arm of the government, uh, U.S. attorneys and uh, their uh, various uh, other subsidiaries, other, you know, where they were talking about <clears throat> the U.S. attorney or assistant U.S. attorneys in just different offices across the country. Uh, I don't want them to have the ability to say, well, you either plead guilty or you can face ruination of your life. I mean, 20 years in federal prison, you're, you're done, right? There's no matter how old you are, that that's just your life is, is, is ruined. It's never the same. Um, and so even if someone only serves two or three years instead of 20, well, are they serving two or three years because they're terrified of the 20 year sentence or are they serving uh, because they were actually guilty of any crime to begin with? So you have over-criminalization is a very real phenomenon in this country, particularly in the federal criminal code. Now, on the and there, there are too many things for which there are federal uh, criminal violations attached to them. In fact, there are regulations that aren't even, uh, they're not even passed by Congress. They're just 
the regulatory agencies deciding that one thing or another has a criminal penalty. So overcriminalization is a very real phenomenon. And maybe uh, on another day, another show, I'll go over some cases with you uh, of what the of what federal prosecutors will try to try to pull, try to get away with. And look, some of them, uh, I have friends who are current and former federal prosecutors. Uh, some of them are incredibly ethical, and they do work that is amazingly important. Um, but there are also a lot that are political hacks, and they're not ethical, and you don't want to give them too much power. Already they have a tremendous amount of discretion. Uh, there have been cases in the past where they've pressed federal criminal charges against somebody for... Uh, getting lost in the woods on an ATV and finding himself on federal land, ATVing on federal land. Now you face a year in federal prison. Um, people who use the wrong packaging for uh, fish that they're legally legally um, catching, but then the, in the transport of them, they use the wrong packaging material. It's a federal criminal violation. I mean, stuff that's crazy. A woman puts an astringent chemical on the door handle of a rival lover's, I think it was her her trailer home, and instead of just uh, charging with assault and you know criminal mischief or whatever, they tried to charge her with a violation of a chemical weapons treaty. Okay, uh, these these are federal prosecutors making these decisions and going forward with them. And uh, there are I, mean, I could sit here and go over a number of cases with you where no reasonable justice-minded person would say, yeah, somebody should somebody should even face prison for that. Now, um. Jeff Sessions, in his letter, says that the Obama administration policy of leniency, especially on drug crimes, is going to end, and that now prosecutors, as a matter of policy, should go for the highest provable offense. Uh, the Obama perspective on this was, the Obama administration's perspective, was that they would go for, unless there were uh, additional circumstances, so if somebody was involved in violence or uh, you know, if it was r repeat offenders, I mean, there were other factors that would be taken into this, but they would not necessarily go for the highest chargeable and provable offense. And so a lot of in a lot of drug cases, they would go with something lesser. Um, I think that for first time offenders in a drug related case where there's not a v violence or a threat of violence where you don't have uh, weapons carried also in, in the in the drug uh, transaction and. Yeah, there's a number of other mitigating factors or not, or sorry, exacerbating factors that you could throw in there. We also should think about mitigating factors. Uh, I, I don't agree with mandatory minimum sentencing for people that are engaged in a nonviolent drug transaction. And I know all I've read all kinds of stuff about how even nonviolent drug transactions uh, provide money for cartels and incredibly violent uh, organized crime. And I, I understand all of that. But a first time offender in a nonviolent uh, in a nonviolent act, should not be facing 10, 20, perhaps even life in prison. Uh, that's This is my opinion, and it's a place where I will diverge from the Trump administration on this. Uh, I, I don't like the, the federal government having an even more aggressive policy of criminal enforcement because we have a very large population of those incarcerated right now. As a percentage of our population, it's also quite large and we should understand this and maybe this will get some of you who right now are shaking your heads like buck you don't get it law and order you got to do it i understand law and order but i think you know if you're if you're caught selling a little too much weed you know maybe giving you uh i don't know what the, it depends on where you are and what the federal statute would say but 
making sure that it doesn't completely destroy your life might be a, a worthwhile, you know, might be worthwhile to give someone a second chance on that. But remember this as well. Uh, the Democrats at some point will be back in power. And I know it's a terrible thing to say, especially before we're going to be going into the weekend. It's very sad. But at some point in the future, Democrats will be in charge again. And giving whomever is in the prosecutor's office increased discretion over, I'm sorry, less discretion, but increased power to destroy, meaning you're supposed to just go after the maximum here. And that's now a matter of policy. Uh, This could be used in any number of categories. Remember that uh, there's also political targeting that will occur. Remember what happened with the Tea Party and the IRS? Well, we've also seen very politicized investigations of Republicans that they were trying to, I just mentioned this earlier in the week, they were trying to bring criminal cases against Chris Christie, against Scott Walker, against Bob McDonnell, against Rick Perry. You get on the line, they, they were trying to imprison Dick Cheney under the Bush administration with that special prosecutor nonsense. I mean, the, the, the Democrats don't play fair And if we establish a precedent of always going for the maximum charge, at some point we may look back at this and say, hold on a minute. Oh, by the way, they'll also want to apply this with Democrats in charge. They would want to apply this to white collar crimes. This is always a game that the left plays. They say, well, drug crimes are going to be treated harshly. We're also then going to lock somebody away for decades for, you know, embezzlement. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. Welcome back, team. There's a story today in the Christian Science Monitor, When Fear of Automation is Too Robotic. Now, uh, this is a, a continuing theme, a story that I like to pay attention to here on the show because while there's a lot of rhetoric out there about jobs being lost due to outsourcing and how we need to bring back good jobs into this country. And you hear politicians talk about this, but without really ever having much in the way of solutions. And some of their solutions are actually either ineffective or perhaps even more damaging to employment prospects for people in this country, Uh, though it, it sounds good in the short term. And so politicians tend to do whatever is going to work for them for the next election. Uh, But automation is a game changer in a lot of industries. And this Christian Science Monitor piece is looking at uh, two studies on the impact of new technologies. And they're more or less saying that, look, people shouldn't be afraid of robots and artificial intelligence. This is going to make life better. This is not going to create massive social disruption. Uh, So that's that's a couple of studies of Christian Science Monitor. Meanwhile, couple of other folks weighing in on this earlier this year. Uh, here's Stephen Hawking, pretty well known as an uh, astrophysicist and uh, had that movie, The Theory of Everything, recently. Um, here's what he said about this. The automation of factories has already decimated jobs in traditional manufacturing, and the rise of artificial intelligence is likely to extend this job destruction deep into the middle classes with only the most caring, creative, or supervisory roles remaining. Okay, that's just Stephen Hawking, you might say. That's only one genius's opinion. Uh, What does Elon Musk think about this? Uh, Quote, what to do about mass unemployment? This is going to be a massive social challenge. There will be fewer and fewer jobs that a robot cannot do better than a human. These are not things that I wish will happen. 
These are simply things that I think probably will happen. That's Elon Musk. Okay, another genius uh, with real concerns and, and thinking that this is going to get a lot worse. What about Bill Gates? Super rich dude, most uh, wealthy guy on the planet, I believe, still. Quote, you cross the threshold of job replacement of certain activities all sort of at once. So, you know, warehouse work, driving, room cleanup. There's quite a few things that are meaningful job categories that will certainly in the next 20 years will go away. Um, that's stark from some leading voices on innovation technology and where the future uh, of work is really going. Uh, the Economist has done some analysis of this too that I've, I've been reading recently, and uh, they they break it down into well, they, there's a piece: automation and anxiety will smarter machines cause mass unemployment. So here are the competing theories about this. Uh, on the one hand, they look back into history and they say, uh, well, every time there have been concerns about mass unemployment from technology, it has been more of a displacement than a destruction, meaning that when there's some new, you know, when the automobile comes out, sure, uh, buggy whip manufacturers uh, are going to lose their jobs, but there are also a lot of people that are going to have jobs in automotive plants and in manufacturing the parts and in uh, and selling the cars and in every aspect of the supply chain and the delivery and sale of this new product, this new and better product, which also, of course, added tremendously to the efficiency, the uh, internal combustion engine, automobiles, to the efficiency of every other business, right? No matter, no matter what business you're in, it was going to be cheaper to have a car or a truck deliver your supplies than it was to have a horse and buggy, right? This is just... So, so technology and efficiency are, uh, from a historical uh, perspective, always making businesses better. And sh- there have been entire industries that have been either decimated or, or even gone away because of technology. Uh, I don't think there are a lot of people that are making VHS tapes anymore, for example, in this country. That, that's gone. But you could say, well, they, a lot of those companies probably went into CDs, then went into DVDs, and now are in the digital space or at least some companies with their disruptions in that marketplace were able to do it. Here's the big question. As technology becomes so much better and so much faster, will we see not a replacement of jobs, but just machines uh, machines completely replacing human beings in entire sectors, and there is no, uh, there, there is no shift in employment that is meaningful? So if you have an entire, it's one thing to say that you know, the, the factory will be automated. It's nothing to say that all factories and all transport and sale will be almost entirely automated. Uh, this, this is one of those, is this time different questions? Uh, is the new era we're entering, especially when it comes to uh, uh, work in the hospitality industry, service industry, sale industry, whether you're an insurance salesman, a stockbroker, uh, a truck driver, Technology is different now than it was even a few years ago, and its capabilities exceed the wildest dreams of what would have been possible 100 years ago. Um, So is this a this time it's different situation Uh, when we look at employment and the possibility of mass unemployment in the future because of technology? That's really the question uh, that we should be addressing right now. And like I said, from a from a perspective of history, 
efficiency and technology just change where the jobs are. They don't eliminate jobs. But if a certain per- percentage of jobs or a certain percentage of industries can be entirely automated and done by technology, where does labor go then? Could we be seeing a future in which there isn't a place for uh, unskilled labor or even semi-skilled labor and you have a society where you just have a, a whole class of people who are not going to be employed? This, that would lead to real social upheaval. It's a uh, very interesting and, I have to say, unsettling question. But, team, uh, I'll hit a quick break here and come back with some history. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Team, I thought it would be worthwhile to spend a little time on what we could call the history of, of everything, which might become a recurring segment here on the show. But as I'm discussing with you concerns about new technology and what that technology could possibly do to employment and how innovation, while we love the increased productivity, the cheaper goods, and the conveniences in our day-to-day life, among a whole bunch of other benefits we could discuss Uh, There are some who become concerned when times change. There are those who worry about what it will mean for them specifically. Uh, You can borrow here the uh, the old phrase. uh, I believe it's from Keynes himself that in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, So some people might be willing to say, sure, uh, we don't necessarily oppose technology as an idea or even a specific technology for what it does. We're just worried about what it will do uh, to our day-to-day lives or to our employment more specifically. Uh, This has been a concern that has existed for a long time. In fact, a couple hundred years ago, at the beginning of the the 19th century, uh, so around 1812, 1813, you saw what became known as the Luddite riots or the Luddite rebellion. Um, Let's talk about Luddites, a little history of this on our Friday here. Uh, They are the original, or I should say at least thought of as the original technophobes. Uh, They were the rage uh, at the mechanical age. At the onset of the Industrial Revolution, this group of British uh, textile workers were involved in a series of uprisings, uh, riots, uh, a kind of uh, coordinated mini-rebellion of sorts um, that has also become a little exaggerated. And this is where we get the term uh, Luddite today, which is just anyone who's opposed to progress and technology, right? You say, oh, I, I hate cell phones. I'm a, I'm a Luddite. I like the old-fashioned rotary phone or Uh, I I had a a teacher, for example, who refused to use this was maybe a decade ago, but refused to use a laptop, still used a typewriter and would say that he took comfort in his Luddite ways. Um, But Luddite as a term is is interesting because it's really based on an apocryphal figure, uh, a, a, a fake figure, Ned Ludd, who never really existed. Uh, Ned Ludd, who later on would become known as Captain or King Ludd or even General Ludd uh, was somebody that was made up. He was really an anti, uh, anti-technology anti boogeyman, uh, supposedly lived in Nottingham Forest, just like 
the fictional Robin Hood. And uh, people said when they looked for some more realistic uh, background of Ned Ludd, he might have been a couple of decades before the Luddite riots. Uh, they thought that maybe there was a guy named Ludd, uh, or th- this was the fiction, I should say, that there was a, a guy named Ludd in the city of uh, Leicester. Um, and the, he supposedly he was told that he wasn't doing a good job uh, knitting, and his boss got on his case, and so he got angry. This Ludd character got angry and destroyed uh, destroyed the mechanism he was using uh, in order to do his job as, a, as, as somebody working in textiles. Uh, so he destroyed that. And that was what they seized on to create this, to conjure this character of uh, Ned Ludd or, or King Ludd, who lived in Sherwood Forest like Robin Hood. He was, uh, and it, it, he was really a, a social justice warrior before, we, before anyone used the term. But the Luddite Rebellion is a little more complicated than is often thought of, because now Luddite is just this term for anyone who is afraid of technology who has uh, concerns about what it will do to their their industry. Uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a lot of uh, economic turmoil, and British working families in the textile industry, uh, w- which was widespread in, in parts of England, uh, parts, of the, uh, parts of Britain, they were concerned about their ability to maintain wages. This really was a an organized labor protest before that was a term that was uh, thrown around and, and used. Um, and by the way, families would go hungry. I mean, there was no welfare state, so concerns over the future of one's industry and business weren't just a, a function of whether wages were high enough, but it was uh, a question, in some cases, of, of survival for these families. And there had been a lot of taxation from the British government to support the wars against, the war against Napoleon, uh, and, and poverty was widespread, and, and you know this was something that was fertile ground for a movement that just decided to take uh, force into its hands and uh, lash out against this perception of exploitation. Because the truth is that the textile industry, uh, as it was getting going, as there were more improvements in it, um, the, the Luddites uh, or the people that were part of the Luddite Rebellion weren't opposed to using the new technology, they were destroying the technology as a form of protest. They were destroying the uh, machinery that made the textile work much easier and more efficient um, so that, that, that it, was, it was a protest. It, it wasn't that they refused to use it, and they were worried that after uh, developing years of a, a skill set that was applicable to their job that they could be replaced with less skilled labor. So it's not it's not that they hate technology. This wasn't some uh, desire for technological regression so much as it was social upheaval that came uh, from the increase of this technological, uh, well, the, the increase in technology that meant that you didn't need to be quite as trained. And of course, then also there were concerns about exploitation by the uh, labor bosses. And th- this was all uh, as well part of the grist for the mill, so to speak, of what would become the Marxist socialist movement and the uh, proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. And uh, with the Industrial Revolution, 
you saw a much greater focus on that conflict between worker and owner, between the, the bourgeois and the proletariat, uh, and class struggle in, in a new context, right? It was no longer the class struggle between feudal lords and serfs. It was the class struggle between the owners in the cities and owners of the industrial uh, factories and the workers. Uh, so Luddites were at the early stage of that, and there were some uh, very real uh, fights that broke out as, as a result of this. Um, there, over about a 70-mile part of northern England, uh, there were protests that would go on, and they weren't just protests, there were riots. I mean, they would smash and destroy factories, and sometimes they would, they would set factories on fire, Uh, In one of the worst incidents in 1812, there were about 2,000 protesters that surrounded a mill near the city of Manchester. Uh, But the Luddites got the worst end of it. They were fired on by the owner's security guards, uh, and three were killed and 18 were wounded. Uh, And then the next day in clashes, five more were killed. So there were sometimes exchanges of gunfire between defenders of mills in places like Yorkshire um, and, and Manchester with the Luddites. But overall, this was a, a destructive protest movement, um, and they were often attacking the stocking frame, uh, which was a, a knitting machine. So that was, one of the, that was one of the tools that they were most concerned about. Um, and that was not that they didn't want to use it at all, but it's that they were worried, again, that they could be, their wages would be undercut and they would have no bargaining power against the owners and that their families would be out in the cold and there was nothing that they could do about it. Um, by the way, Luddite is really a form of uh, saboteur. And what's interesting to me is that the term uh, saboteur or sabotage has some, some interesting uh, origins here, right? Because the, the Luddites were sabotaging machinery. In fact, the term itself, sabotage, comes from a, a term in French, saboteur, sabotage, these are French words that the, that the English adopted. Uh, from ar- around the same period, uh, they, would, uh, ca- they, they would refer to sabotage as using a wooden shoe that people would wear, the sabot. Um, and it also has uh, similarities with a term that some of you may know as a, a savate, uh, savat means, well, savat is actually a form of French martial art, believe it or not, that involves uh, lots of kicking. And so that's where you get, so you get the term sabotage from French comes from, a, and saboteur comes from the old French word sabot, which is a wooden shoe. And the etymology is a, is a little unclear, but people have at least been told for a long time, this is disputed, that the workers in the early days of the Industrial Revolution would throw their sabot, their shoe, into machinery, and it would mess up the machinery, and then they could go home, and this was a, a form of protest as well. Um, and that's how we get the term. And it's from the Middle French, sabot is from Middle French, savat, which is old shoe, and savat is also, S-A-V-A-T-E, is a French martial art um, that is boxing with some high-kicking uh, into it as well. Who knew the, fr- the French have their own martial arts system? Uh, believe it or not, my friend. So, anyway, I wanted to give you a little background on the uh, Luddite rebellion. I thought you might find that interesting. Um, and uh, it, it's it's Friday, so uh, a, l- a little history to send you home on Friday is not a bad idea always. 
uh, team, uh, please do check out BuckSexton.com. You can uh, check it out throughout the day. And uh, we post stories there that we're going to be talking about on the show. And uh, also um, go online to iTunes. You can subscribe to Buck Sexton with uh, Buck Sexton with America Now there. Uh, just click subscribe, share it with some friends. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of fantastic shows next week. 